Blog Talk Radio. Theology Matters with the Palous. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and great to have you join us on this Tuesday afternoon, about 2 o'clock Eastern, my time, kind of a different time that we are doing the show. We normally, uh, well, we have been doing the shows on Thursday nights um, for the last several years, and um we started doing uh, Ratio Christi College prep on Thursdays, and so we've had to find another time to fit the shows in. <laughs> uh, and so today we're going to be uh, we're doing it today because we have uh, uh, Jonathan McClatchy with us again. He's been on the show a few times, and uh, he's like five or six hours ahead of us, I think, his time. And so uh, that's why we're doing it somewhat early. Uh, today, because we didn't want to keep them up till two o'clock in the morning or something like that. But uh, great show today. We are going to be answering Islam, answering Islam. We're going to be looking at some of the top objections that Muslim apologists give, as well as diving into some of the standard doctrines of uh, Islam and comparing them with Christianity. So I'm really glad you are able to to join us today. Uh, we will be taking your calls a little later in the show, and uh, I can give that number out for those interested. You can call in at 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Let me tell you a little bit about, uh, well, before I do that, um, if you've not liked us on Facebook, uh, if you go to Theology Matters uh, with the Palouse on Facebook, uh, you can find all of our past shows. We've been doing podcasts now for uh, probably right around five years, maybe a little longer. And uh, we really cover a lot of different topics. And uh, what I love about this show, because I, I actually listen to it frequently myself, 
uh, is not me. Uh, it's not my voice, but it is the fact that we get incredible guests. I mean, just amazing, amazing guests. We've had Rob Bowman on twice, actually. We did a show with him on the Doctrine of the Trinity, uh, and then we did a show with him on um, one of Bart Ehrman's latest books. Uh, we do a lot of debates. Uh, a month ago, we hosted a debate uh, between Gary um, Andriano, who uh, was a Protestant, uh, recently, fairly recently converted to Eastern Orthodox, and uh, a Protestant uh, Presbyterian minister. Did a did a full two-hour debate on that, looking at some of the differences there. We've had Catholic apologist Devin Rhodes on the show and done a two-hour debate there on Sola Scriptura. Uh, as well as some other big Catholic apologists. Uh, You know, we think theology matters, and we think we need to have these discussions because um, they're important. We can have discussions about hot topics such as Islam and Christianity. It doesn't have to be nasty. It doesn't have to be angry. Uh, One of the reasons uh, I always have Jonathan come on the show uh, is because he's very respectful. He's very articulate. uh, He's a a brilliant mind and you know we want to do shows that are high quality that can produce more light than heat you know you get a lot of shows you know they may get more ratings because it's a you know a jerry springer style show of screaming and yelling we don't want that we don't think that glorifies christ we don't think that um is a biblical view we want to have dialogue rational dialogue with people who disagree with us we think Christianity is true. We think the Bible is the word of God. We think the other views are false. And uh, just as the other views think we're false. And we're not afraid to put these uh, claims to the test. And so we invite people. If you're a Muslim today, um, you're going to disagree with what we say. But I would say listen with an open heart, with an open mind. Give us a call. You know, we want to listen to you. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, let's see what, the, see, see what arguments you have. And uh, let's let's discuss them. So today, Jonathan McClatchy is from the UK. Um, we're going to look at this issue of Islam. We're going to look at uh, who is Muhammad, uh, what does Islam teach regarding the nature of God, where does Jesus fit into the Muslim religion, um, are the Gospels reliable? That's one thing that uh, a lot of Muslim apologists really uh, hammer on is these issues. How do we answer that? Jonathan is an incredible thinker. Um, he, he is a frequent writer for uh, crossexamined.org. That's Frank Turk's excellent ministry, which we promote all the time on the show. Uh, the Christian Apologetics Alliance, a uh, wonderful Facebook group. If you're not part of that group, uh, just a great community of like-minded individuals who love apologetics and want to glorify God with their mind. Uh, he, he, so he writes there. He does... Uh, uh, Christian Apologetics in the UK, where he presents a case for the Christian worldview. He's a leading con- uh, or a regular contributor to the leading intelligent design website, Evolution News and Views, as well as Uncommon Descent. He holds a bachelor's degree with honors in forensic biology, a master's degree in evolutionary biology, as well as a master's degree in medical and molecular bioscience. The guy is incredible. I should also add He's done several public debates. Um, probably relevant with today would be uh, debating uh, Shabir Ali, who's one of the top um, Islamic apologists. And you can actually find that uh, 
debate on YouTube, and he's also been on Justin Brierley's show Unbelievable several times. And so it's my honor. Jonathan, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me on the program, Devin. Yeah, man, it is my honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate you giving us your time and just letting us kind of pick your brain a little bit. Yeah. Did I um, did, did, did I leave anything out of the uh, intro? Is there anything I you you wanted to add to that? No, that's great. Um, yes, as you mentioned, I've done a number of uh, debates. So at the moment, I've done uh, nine formal debates and seven radio debates. Uh, I've actually uh, Shabir Ali and I have debated twice actually. Um, wow. So, yeah. Did not know that. Is that is the second one up uh, for viewing or? Yeah. Yep. They're both online. Yep. Okay, great. I, I will have Jonathan shoot me those links, and we will put them on our Theology Matters page for those interested. Jonathan, tell us a little bit, um, how did you get into studying uh, Islam, and uh, why, why did you see the need for uh, learning kind of how to do apologetics with Muslims? Uh, sure. Well, when I did my undergraduate uh, degree program at the University of Strathclyde between 2007 and 2011, I uh, interacted uh, for the first time, I guess, with people of different uh, faith persuasions, including uh, Muslims. And, uh, and so I became interested in defending uh, the truth and veracity of the gospel um, relative to other competing contending worldviews such as Islam and so on um, and uh, you know, how can we marshal an argument and evidence to uh, demonstrate the truth of the gospel and indeed the falsehood of uh, um, man-made religions such as Islam so uh, so I've, I've sought over the years to, uh, to read uh, a lot of what people have written on both sides of the various uh, issues and uh, and also to uh, work to build a uh, systematic, uh, uh, rational uh, defense of the Christian faith based upon evidence and reason. That's wonderful, and I've I've uh, been able to see a few of your debates there and listen listen to them on the radio. And uh, again, one of the one of the things I appreciate you, about you a lot is that you are uh, very charitable, and I think you're even-handed. Um, you get some some maybe well-meaning uh, Christians that can just do a lot of damage. In fact, you've, you've spoke about that a few times. Do you have any advice for Christians who are getting into Islamic apologetics or, or just Christians encountering Islam in general? Uh, sure. I mean, I would say that, uh, that being, uh, uh, being gracious at all times and uh, charitable is something which is very important. You know, Scripture speaks about uh, um, having our conversations full of grace and seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer everybody. Uh, we should, of course, um, always um, exercise um, the principle of charity, that we should always um, read uh, our um, interlocutors' uh, words in the best uh, possible light. Um, we should, in particular, exercise graciousness and charity when, even when our opponents uh, revile us, and even when they are um, not exercising uh, those principles. You know, there's a great uh, quote from Ignatius of Antioch, who's one of my um, favorite early church fathers. In his epistle to the Ephesians, he writes, uh, "Meet their animosity with mildness, their high words with humility, 
and their abuse with your prayers, but stand firm against their errors, and if they grow violent, be gentle instead of wanting to pay them back in their own coin. Let us show by our forbearance that we are their brothers, and try to imitate the Lord by seeing which of us can put up with the most ill usage or privation or contempt, so that in this way none of the devil's noxious weeds may take root in you. Um, and so I think that's a, a, a tremendous uh, principle that um, all Christians should uh, employ in their dialogue. Yes, we refute and we demolish uh, arguments, and we cast down every uh, pretension which sets itself up against the knowledge of God, but we do so with grace and humility. As First Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. And some more um, principles that I would uh, recommend for Christians who are getting into apologetics, um, such as uh, to Islam or in other fields as well, is um, that we should always research our arguments uh, thoroughly. Uh, and that, that should go without saying, but you'd be surprised at the number of people who don't take the time to hunt down primary source, um, relying instead on what other people have said about that primary source. And that's a, a very uh, bad habit to have. When, when one reads a quotation in a book that has been taken from another source, we should uh, try to avoid using it unless one can trace it to the primary source, um, because if the quotation has, of course, been taken out of context um, or been misinterpreted by the author, then we're just as culpable if we don't check it ourselves. So um, researching arguments thoroughly, um, we... Um, we, uh, we have to be very careful. We should strive to understand the view that we are criticizing better than the best defenders of that position. Um, we, there, there's uh, nothing worse than an apologist who discredits the gospel by making basic misrepresentations of a view such as uh, Islam um, um, that would have been avoided with a little research. Um, and so we shouldn't uh, simply limit our reading to books that already agree with us, but rather we should be courageous and read books representing the other side of the debate as well. Um, uh, we should be um, honest and forthcoming about the weaknesses of our position um, and um, we should at all times uh, employ consistent standards, right? We should employ um, the same standard to our worldview as we are to another worldview, such as Islam. So, um, And above all, we should be a good listener, right? We should be listening very carefully to where, um, to, to where um, the person we're um, dialoguing with is coming from, um, so that, these are some of the, the principles and advice I'd give to people getting into the field of apologetics. That's very good. Very good. I appreciate that, Jonathan. Very good words of wisdom. Well, let's, uh, let's kind of go through maybe some of the comparative doctrines. Um, let's look at, uh, at Islam's doctrine of God. Now, um, as you know, there was this uh, big, big kerfluffle probably a year or so ago. Uh, I believe it was with a Wheaton professor. I believe she had made the comment uh, to the effect that, that Jews, or I'm sorry, Muslims, and and she might have included Jews as well, that uh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God and uh, really caused quite the firestorm. I, I would just like your your views on that, and then walk us through a little bit of um, what is uh, Islam, the Islamic view of monotheism. Sure. Well, um, in regards to the question of do Christians and Muslims worship the same God, the um, one has to ask, well, what exactly do you mean by that, right? If, if they simply mean, well, we worship, uh, well, we believe that the Quran is the... Um, Newer revelation, so the, the the Quran is to the New Testament what you Christians believe the New Testament is to the Old Testament. Uh, that's kind of what uh, Christ, what Muslims mean when they say that they believe in the same God. But really, at core, the Muslim 
uh, beliefs concerning Allah are at um, odds with uh, the, bio- the biblical revelation of God, both in the Old and New Testament. And so, at an essential level, uh, Christians and Muslims cannot be said to be worshipping the same God because they are fundamentally different in very, very many respects. Now, now one of the core differences, as you've already alluded to, is the concept in Islam of Tawheed, which is the um, the view of Islamic monotheism. And Tawheed can be defined as the proposition that Allah is absolutely one, both in being and in person. And God has no partners and is dependent upon nothing. Um, so that's the, the doctrine of Tawheed, as um, Muslims understand it. And what's interesting, uh, if we look in the Quran, the Quran over and over again affirms uh, monotheism, uh, but it never actually affirms uh, Unitarianism, which is the absolute uh, oneness of person of God. So, for instance, in uh, Surah 4, verse 171, it says, Do not say three. Stop it. That is good for you. Allah is the only one God. He is far too pure to have a son. Or Surah 6, verse 101, says, He is the originator of the heavens and the earth. How can he have a son when he never had a wife? He created everything and he knows everything. Um, Surah 5, verse 73, says, Surely disbelievers are those who say, Allah is the third of the three, but there is no God but one God. If they do not desist from what they say, a painful punishment shall certainly befall such disbelievers. Um, and so every time the Quran affirms uh, the truth of uh, monotheism and saying God is one, it uh, immediately goes on to um, affirm um, it, it, it immediately goes on to affirm that God is a, that a monotheism. So it, sa- so it says don't say three because there's only one. Now if you say don't say three because there's only one, what are you doing? You're putting the two in the same category. Um, and so, um, um, so the Quran seems to equate uh, the Trinity with uh, tritheism, saying that there are three gods. When in fact, as uh, as uh, Trinitarians, we're not saying we're not affirming tritheism. We're not saying that there are three gods, but rather we are saying there is one divine being or essence that is uh, comprised of three co-equal divine persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who share that being fully and completely. Uh, so the Quran seems to completely uh, misunderstand what Christians mean when they talk about uh, the Trinity. Uh, we believe that God is one, but he is complex in his unity. Now, um, the, uh, the, uh, the Quran also, in fact, uh, misrepresents what Christians mean about the Trinity still further. If we look at uh, Surah 5, verse 75, it says, the Messiah, son of Miriam, is no more than a messenger. There have been messengers before him. His mother was very truthful. Both of them used to eat food. Look how we explain science to them, then see how far they are turned away. Uh, and it raises this question, well, why, why on earth would it say that Mary would eat food? Because surely that would be rather obvious. But if we read the context, and we read as far as verse 116 of Surah 5, we read, and when Allah said, O Jesus, or Isa, son of Miriam, did you say to the people, Take me and my mother as gods beside Allah. He said, Pure are you. It does not behoove me to say what is not right for me. Had I said it, you would have known it. You know what is in my heart, and I, and I do not know what is in yours. Yet you alone have full knowledge of all that is unseen. Um, and so the Quran here seems to represent the Christian understanding of the Trinity as comprising of Allah, Jesus, and Mary. 
Um, and the Muslims respond to this and say, ah, this is really just combating uh, Mariolatry in the uh, Roman Catholic Church and how the Roman Catholics venerate Mary and, and basically idolize her like a deity. And so that's what the Quran is addressing. The problem is that if we read uh, um, it in view of verse 75, which says um, that his, mo- his mother eat, ate food, and also view of something like Surah 601, which says, uh, far be it from Allah, he should have a son. How can you have a son when you never had a wife? Um, it becomes very clear what Muhammad's um, understanding of the Christian position is, that Allah has taken to himself a bride to beget a son. Now, in uh, Ibn Ishaq, uh, he was there, uh, Ibn Ishaq was the earliest uh, biographer uh, of the Prophet Muhammad that is extant. And uh, we don't actually have Ibn Ishaq's work. Uh, we have, uh, nine, uh, Ibn Ishaq wrote in the middle of the 8th century, but we have a, a 9th century recension by Ibn Hisham. And uh, in that uh, volume, uh, um, in, uh, we, we read the following. Uh, the, uh, this is in the English translation published by uh, Cambridge University Press on pages 271 to 272. He writes, uh, There were Christians according to the Byzantine rite, though they differed among themselves at some point, saying he is God and he is the Son of God and he is the third person of the Trinity, which is the doctrine of Christianity. They argue that he is God because he used to raise the dead and heal the sick and declare the unseen and make clay birds and then breathe into them so that they flew away. And all this was by the command of God Almighty. We will make him a sign to men. They argue that he is the Son of God in that they say he had no known father and he spoke in the cradle and this is something that no child of Adam has done. They argue that that is the third of three and that God says we have done, we have commanded, we have created and we have decreed. And they say... If he were one, he would have said, I have done, I have created, and so on. But he is he, and Jesus, and Mary. Concerning all these assertions, the Quran came down. And so even the earliest excellent biographer of Muhammad um, understood the Christian concept of the Trinity to encompass Allah, Jesus, and Mary. So that's uh, rather problematic. Um, now, um, if we, uh, to, to, to contrast um, the Islamic understanding of uh, of Tawhid, or the um, absolute oneness of, of God, with uh, the Jewish scriptures, so that we can try to use that to discern whether uh, Muslims are affirming uh, the same God or not. Let's look at what the Old Testament has to say about the nature of God. Um, well, I'm sure your listeners will have heard of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Shema Israel Yahweh Yahweh which in English is, Ye hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, and so here we have a clear affirmation of monotheism. Uh, we also have a clear affirmation of monotheism, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, and chapter 43, verses 10 and 11. We read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So, Monotheism comes through very clearly in the Old Testament, but what we find in the Old Testament is that although God is one, he is nonetheless complex in his unity. Now, how can we show this? Well, if we look, for instance, at um, the character of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, for example, if we look at uh, the book of Isaiah, and chapter 63 and verse 10, it speaks about, it speaks about the Israelites in the wilderness um, who rebelled against God, and it says, 
uh, Abbotley rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. So here we find that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament can be grieved, which is a prerogative or an attribute, rather, of personhood. So the Holy Spirit is a, is a person. We also learn uh, that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, imparts uh, wisdom. Um, in Isaiah 11, uh, for example, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, the Holy Spirit, we also learn in the Old Testament, instructs. For example, in Nehemiah chapter 9, and verse 20, uh, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and gave them water for their thirst. Uh, we also have um, the Holy Spirit telling people what to say. For example, in Ezekiel 11, verse 5, And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. Um, we also learn that the Holy Spirit is responsible for inspiring the Scriptures. For example, in Second Samuel 23, verse 2, we read, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Or Zechariah 7, verse 12, They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Or Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through, the, through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear, therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Um, or we also learn of the distinctive personality of the Holy Spirit. For example, in Isaiah 48:16, we read, "Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit." And Psalm 104, verse 30: "When you send forth your Spirit, they are created." So the Holy Spirit is a distinctive personality. The Holy Spirit is also throughout the Old Testament identified as the Spirit of God. Um, and also there are other characteristics of deity which are attributed to him, including the ability to create. So I just mentioned uh, Psalm 104.30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Or another example is Job 33, verse 4, the spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Um, the Holy Spirit also has omniscience um, in um, Isaiah 40, verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him, his counsel. Um, he also has omnipresence. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Um, the Holy Spirit also has tremendous power. Um, for example, um, in Judges 14, verse 6, and we read, um, speaking of uh, uh, Samson, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he, had he, although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the line to pieces as one tears a young goat. He did not tell his father or his mother what he had done, um, and other texts as well. So here we can see that the Holy Spirit is, is a divine and yet distinctive personality in the Old Testament. There's also, um, and then so we, we should ask the question further, well, are there any other divine figures in the Old Testament? Well, if we look at uh, the book of Daniel and chapter 7, uh, and verse 13 and 14, we read about Daniel's son of man vision, where he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is of an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, 
and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. Now, that last that phrase there, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which should not pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed, is what King Darius said of the God of Daniel in uh, Daniel 6, verse 26. It's also uh, what... Um, and, and if we read uh, earlier in the, in the text where we read that all nations are to offer worship or religious service to the Son of Man. In the Aramaic text, the word is Pelach, which is a type of religious service only ascribed to Yahweh. And uh, in the Greek Septuagint translation, the word is Latru, which is um, the, a form of religious service, a very highest form of religious service. Again, a type only ever ascribed to Yahweh. He also is portrayed as riding the clouds, just as Yahweh is said to ride the clouds in various Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 19, verse 1, Psalm 104, verse 3, and so on. Um, we also um, have uh, other passages in the Old Testament, uh, actually uh, quite a lot of Old Testament passages, which speak about uh, figure, the, the angel of, of Yahweh figure, for example, who is, uh, who is the, the um, who is basically a manifestation of God himself, and What's interesting in Genesis 19:24, after uh, um, in Genesis 18, Abraham had um, pleaded, had uh, negotiated with Yahweh over the people of Sodom, and in chapter 19, verse 24, it says, "Then the Lord, or, then Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven." And so you actually have Yahweh on earth, and yet you have Yahweh in heaven, and so you have two individual persons there identified by the title of Yahweh. So there's there's uh, much, many more many more examples besides, but that's at least a start on on that, um, and we uh, uh, we have very good reason uh, to to I think affirm to, uh, a multiplicity of divine persons simply from the Old Testament. Now, going back to the the Quran, uh, Muslims often uh, talk about uh, the uh, apparent uh, contradictions or problems with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. But in fact, if we read the Qur'an, as I mentioned earlier, we don't find the absolute Unitarianism that Muslims um, around the world believe. Um, the Qur'an simply affirms monotheism. It does not expressly or explicitly affirm Unitarianism. And in fact, there are problems with the Islamic concept of Tawheed uh, from the Qur'an. For example, in, in the Surah 85.22, we read that the Qur'an is actually inscribed in tablets in paradise. And the mainstream interpretation of this from Sunni Muslims is that the Quran is actually unchanged, eternal in paradise. And so now you have uh, two eternal beings. You have Allah and you have his word. How does one square that with the Islamic concept of Tawheed? Moreover, according to various texts in the Quran, such as Surah 2 verse 28 and Surah 22 6, Allah is the creator of life. Surah 1523 tells us, and I quote, it is indeed we and only we who give life and bring death and we are the ultimate inheritor. Surah 2, verse 228, tells us that Allah is the one who creates life in the womb. We also read that Allah creates life by a certain mechanism, namely the mechanism of breathing his spirit. Uh, in Surah 2191, we read, And remember her who protected her private part, so we blew in her through our spirit, and made her and her son a sign for all the worlds. Or Surah 6612, uh, and Miriam, daughter of Amran, uh, who guarded her chastity, so we breathed into her our spirit, and she testified to the truth of the words of her Lord and his books, and she was one of the devout. Now, these texts dovetail with, um, um, in fact, um, also, just to support that further, Surah 15, verse 28 through 29, also tells us about the creation of Adam. 
Recall when your Lord said to the angels, I am going to create a human being from a ringing clay made of decayed mud. When I form him perfect and blow in him of my spirit, then you must fall them before him in prostration. So there are several texts which show that Allah creates by the mechanism of breathing a spirit. Now, what is this spirit? Well, uh, these texts happen to dovetail with Surah Miriam, or Surah 19 in the Quran, verses 16 through 21, in which we read of the spirit appearing in an embodied form to Mary to announce that he is going to give her a boy. This indicates that the spirit is personal. Uh, here's the text. And mention in the book the story of Miriam, when she secluded herself from her people to a place towards east, then she used a barrier to hide herself from them. Then we sent to her our spirit, and he took before her the form of a perfect human being. She said, I seek refuge with the all-merciful Allah against you, if you were God-fearing. He said, I am but a message-bearer of your Lord, sent to give you a boy purified. She said, How shall I have a boy? Well, no, man, no human has ever touched me, nor have I ever been unchaste. He said, So it is. Your Lord said, It is easy for me, and we will do this, so that we make it a sign for you and a mercy from us, that the, and this is a matter already destined. Now, the Arabic word for uh, give here, or wahaba, means to give or to grant or to bestow or to present, etc. So thus, the Holy Spirit also appears to have been the agent that created life in Mary's womb and also brought life to Adam. So um, how does one square that within the Islamic concept of Tawheed? It seems to cause a lot of problems. And the problem actually gets worse than that. If you flip over to Surah 58, verse 22, it says, Believers are such that Allah has inscribed faith in their hearts and has strengthened them with a spirit from him. Now, the text here uses the same verb to strengthen as Surah 287 and Surah 5, verse 110, in reference to the Spirit strengthening Jesus. Now, if the Spirit strengthens all believers everywhere, does that not at least suggest that the Spirit is omnipresent and omnipotent, being present everywhere and being all-powerful? And those, of course, are attributes thought to be uniquely associated with the divine. Um, now, how might a Muslim respond to this uh, dilemma? Well, I brought this up into some debates, and uh, the response that they normally come up with is that to argue that the spirit was used as an agent of Allah and imported life in those cases by the leave or by the permission of Allah, which was a temporary rather than permanent in nature. Um, after all, they point out, didn't Jesus import life to a clay bird in Surah 5, verse 110? Uh, the problem, though, with this uh, response is that Surah 32 seems to suggest that Allah's spirit is involved in the creation of human life in general. Here um, is Surah 32, verses 4 through 9. We read, Allah is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and all that is between them in six days. Then he positioned himself on the throne. Other than him, there is neither a guardian for you, nor an intercessor. Would you then not observe the advice? He manages every matter from the sky to the earth. Then it, every matter will ascend to him in a day the measure of which is 1,000 years according to the way you count. That one is the all-knower of the unseen and the seen, the Almighty, the very merciful, who made well whatever he created and started the creation of man from clay. Then he made his progeny from a drop of semen from despised water. So, of course, this is describing the developmental process. Then he gave him a proportioned shape and breathed into him of his spirit. And he granted you the power of hearing in the eyes and the hearts, therefore you give thanks. So notice that the Spirit is breathed out by Allah in order to create life. And we know that this has to be the same Spirit that we read of in Surah 19, because Surah 66.12 tells us that the Spirit was breathed out by Allah into Mary's womb to bring Jesus to life. 
Yeah, we know from Surah 19 that this same spirit is a personal agent. And so thus a personal agent is breathed out by Allah uh, that shares in one of the divine prerogatives, namely the ability to create life, and also appears to possess the attribute of omnipresence. Um, so while that sort of thing can be accommodated within a framework such as that offered by the Trinity, it's very difficult to reconcile, in my opinion, with the Islamic concept of Tawheed. So that's what I'd say on that particular topic. Wow. <laughs> very, very good. Um, this will be on on uh, the podcast, so uh, guys, you guys can go back and, and listen to that again. A lot of information in there, but very important. Uh, just, just curious, curious, Jonathan. You might have mentioned it, and I might have just missed it. But um, what do Muslims normally say regarding the Holy Spirit? Do they believe there is a Holy Spirit, or what is the Holy Spirit in in uh, Muslim theology or Islamic? Theology? So the Holy Spirit is uh, traditionally uh, interpreted or identified as. Uh, uh, the angel Gabriel, or as the Muslims refer to him, Jibril. And the reason for that is because uh, Surah 19, with the spirit appearing in an embodied form before Mary, uh, is very similar to the story of uh, the angel Gabriel in uh, the Gospels appearing to Mary. Um, However, the Quran nowhere identifies the angel Gabriel as the Holy Spirit. That is simply a Muslim assumption, which actually is not um, not um, specifically supported by the Quranic source. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, folks, let's do this. Let's take a break for a few minutes, and I uh, want to give the number out for those interested. Maybe you'd like to call in. Maybe you're, you're a Muslim and you have some, some questions uh, that has come to surface as Jonathan has uh, kind of talked a little bit about the doctrine of God. Maybe you're a Christian who wants to know a little bit more about uh, Islamic theology, or maybe you're an atheist who thinks uh, both Muslims and Christians are crazy. We would love to hear from you. Uh, You can call in at 760-542-3907. That's 760-542-3907. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Anchorberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Anchorberg. Some Christians are uninterested in the secular philosophical ideas taught in our universities because they seem unimportant. But is it right to ignore these ideas? I believe we do so to our detriment. Ideas being debated in our colleges and universities will eventually make their way to our government leaders and spread throughout society. The great Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said, What is today a matter of academic speculation begins tomorrow to move armies and pull down empires. As Christians, we must not stand by and allow unbiblical ideas to gain ground. Jesus insisted that we love God with our minds. It is part of our duty to engage the world of ideas with biblical truth. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. My name is Scott Klusendorf. I'm the president of Life Training Institute, and I'm a guest lecturer in bioethics at Biola University. The Case for Life was written to express to the believer in Jesus Christ that he or she can make a defense for what they believe on the pro-life issue without offending people, by being gracious, and yet at the same time bringing solid logic and argumentation to the debate 
so that unbelievers look at the Christian at that point and go, wow, Christianity has something relevant to say on a crucial moral issue of our day. Maybe, just maybe, it has something relevant to say on other big issues as well. Because once you start talking about the ultimate questions, like do humans have value for what they are or what they can do? Is truth real and knowable or is it just a preference like choosing ice cream? Once you bring those questions to the table, it's a real short journey over to the other questions over here, which have to do with how do we get right with our maker? How do I as an individual get my, my life in line with the creator of the universe? It's a nice bridge right into talking to people on evangelistic topics. My name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm a cold case homicide detective. Cold case investigations can teach us a lot about how to investigate the claims of Christianity. Cold case detectives examine events in the distant past for which there are often no living eyewitnesses and little, if any, forensic evidence. The Gospels also record an event in the distant past for which there are no living eyewitnesses and no forensic evidence. The skills I've learned as a cold case detective can help you determine if the Gospels are true. I'll teach you how to be a good detective. My new book, Cold Case Christianity, will provide you with 10 important principles known to all cold case detectives. I want to give you tools to help you examine the evidence and draw the most reasonable inference. Cold Case Christianity will help you to take these 10 principles of homicide investigations and apply them to the New Testament Gospels. Are the Gospel writers reliable eyewitnesses? Can they be trusted? Has their testimony been corrupted over the years? What can we conclude about Jesus from the Gospel eyewitness accounts? I want you to come away with fresh insight and the ability to articulate what you discover as you read the Gospels. If you're a Christian, I want you to have the confidence of a good detective. If you're a skeptic, I want to give you something reasonable to think about. I hope you'll read Cold Case Christianity to discover how evidence is examined and what this evidence tells us about Jesus. Take another look at the claims of Christianity from the perspective of a detective. All right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters with the Palouse, and we are discussing... Islam, how to answer Islam, and we have with us our guest, uh, Jonathan McClatchy, and uh, just a brilliant mind, knows a lot of things about a lot of things, <laughs> so if you'd like to call, be part of the program, call in at 760-542-3907, that's 760-542-3907. Jonathan, as we went to the break there, we had just uh, finished uh, talking about the doctrine of God compared from uh, Islam to Christianity. Uh, one of the other things that comes up uh, obviously a lot is the issue of revelation and authority. Uh, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about what is the Quran? What is the Hadith? Um, uh, how big are they? Is it something that uh, Christians in America could read and understand? 
Um, just talk to us a little bit about kind of the, the uh, Muslim view of the Quran. Sure. So the Quran is the uh, uh, revelation from God and uh, their view. Uh, they believe that the, uh, the mainstream Sunni position is that the Quran is eternal. It's inscribed in tablets and paradise. It's completely unchanged. Surah uh, um, 85.22 says the Quran is unchanged in tablets and paradise. Um, they believe that the Quran was delivered piecemeal to Muhammad uh, by the angel Jibreel or Gabriel over um, a period of 22 to 23 years uh, between uh, December of 609 AD and 632 when Muhammad died. Um, the revelations that were delivered between uh, 610 and 622 um, are, are referred to as the Meccan surahs when Muhammad was receiving revelations in Mecca. And then the revelations between 622 and 632, the last decade of Muhammad's life, are identified as the Medinan surahs. Um, and the Quran has 114 uh, chapters. Uh, these are called surahs, and each surah is made up of ayat, and an ayah, which is a singular form, is uh, basically the, it's, uh, the um, translated signs. So, uh, so um, these can be thought. These are our, these are the Islamic equivalent of our verses in the Bible. So they have ayah, um, ayat, and uh, the um, in addition to the Quran. Muslims also appeal to the Hadith collections, and there's a number of different Hadith collections which are classified um, by how strong they are, and the most um, authentic or, or authoritative Hadiths are identified as Sahih Hadith, and uh, the collections that uh, Sunni Muslims uh, attach most weight to are identified as Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. And these are, um, and the Hadith uh, collections span many, many volumes and are very, very um, uh, lengthy. These are um, basically the reports of the um, sayings of the Prophet Muhammad um, and uh, uh, deeds of Muhammad, which are identified as the Sunnah of the Prophet. And uh, Muslims uh, determine how strong the, the tradition is uh, concerning Muhammad's sayings and deeds by virtue of the so-called Isnad chain. And the Isnad chain is the list of narrators, um, which, um, so uh, it will say, uh, so-and-so uh, reports that he got it, this saying uh, from so-and-so, he got it from so-and-so, he got it from so-and-so, he got it from someone who knew the prophet. And, and so they determine, you know, how well do can we trust each of these characters? Uh, the problem, of course, is that they have to appeal to other Hadiths to, to justify how much they're going to trust these characters, and so the whole thing ends up rather circular, but that's what they do. Um, and they also have the, um, uh, the biographies of uh, Muhammad, such as, which, which are identified as the Sirah, um, and the earliest of those that we have is called uh, Sirah Tazu Allah by Ibn Ishaq, and as I mentioned earlier, we don't really have that. It was subsequently edited by his um, Ibn Shaq student called Al-Baqi, and subsequently it was edited again by Ibn Hisham. Uh, and we have Ibn Hisham's recension of Ibn Ishaq. Uh, they also have the uh, tafsir, which are the commentaries of the Quran, and the most authoritative, or the, or the most revered, I should say, um, uh, tafsir uh, commentary is Ebi Kathir, who uh, was a, middle, uh, a medieval uh, Quranic commentator. 
so um, the Quran is the only uh, revelation which is directly from God, and so that's the w- only one that's absolutely um, absolutely binding. But uh, depending on, uh, but but if but if Muhammad said something, then that can be taken as as pretty much just as authoritative. Um, and so the the issue with the hadith is validating how um, authentic the different hadiths are. Um, and and so that that's just a summary of, of the sources that the that the Muslims use. Okay, very good. And could you explain to us what is the Muslim view of uh, the Old and the New Testament, and what are uh, what are what are some of their issues? I guess probably more uh, with the Gospels and some of those issues. Kind of what's the objections and the charge that uh, that uh, is often heard. So uh, the Muslims uh, claim that the uh, Bible has been corrupted and, and that Christians and Jews possess the Bible in its present form, not what uh, was originally given by God. Um, so, um, there, and the reason for that is because the Quran seems to uh, contradict so much of what the previous revelations uh, say, and so they infer, well, the previous revelations, I guess, must just be corrupted. The problem with that um, is that the Quran seems to suggest otherwise. Um, if we look at the Quran, for instance, if we look at Surah 3, verse 3, it says, He has revealed to you the book with the truth, i.e. the Quran, <coughs> confirming what has been before it, and has sent down the Torah and the Injil. So the Torah and the Injil are previous revelations from Allah. And then it says in Surah 4, verse 136, O you who believe, to believe in Allah and his messenger, and in the book he has revealed to his messenger, and in the books he has revealed earlier, whoever disbelieves in Allah and his angels, and his books and his messengers, and the last day has indeed gone far astray. Now how can you believe books that are completely corrupted beyond recognition, or that we don't possess today? Moreover, Surah 4, verse 163, says, Surely we have revealed to you, uh, speaking to Muhammad, as we have revealed to Noah and to the prophets after him, and we have revealed to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, um, Jacob, and their children, and to Esau, Jesus, um, Ayub, uh, Yunus, Harun, and Solomon, and we have given uh, the Burah, that's the Psalms, to Dawood, or David. Um, so, um, Surah, Surah 17, verses 55 and 56 says, your Lord knows best about all those in the heavens and the earth, and we have certainly granted excellence to some prophets over some others, and we gave the wood the Zabur, or the Psalms, uh, say, call those who uh, you assume to be gods beside him, while they have no power to remove distress from you, nor to change it. Surah 21, verse 105, says, and we have written in Zabur, or the Psalms, after the advice that the land will be inherited by my righteous slaves. So, clearly the Quran claims that the previous scriptures possessed um, today by the Jews and Christians were previous revelations from Allah. Now, the Quran also makes specific claims about the contents of those scriptures. For instance, in Surah 7, verse 157, it says, Those who follow the messenger, the unlearned prophet, whom they find written with them in the Torah and the Injil, um, and who bids what is fair and forbids what is unfair, and makes lawful for the good things, and makes unlawful for the impure things, and relieves them of their burden, and of the shackles that were upon them, so those who believe in him and support him and help him and follow the light sent down front with him, these are the ones who are successful. So the Quran says that Muhammad, the unlettered prophet, is found by Christians and Jews written of in the Torah and the Injil. Now, so that must mean that, that Muhammad is found written in the pages of the Torah and the Injil 
that was possessed by the Christians and Jews of the time of Muhammad. And we have what they had in the time of Muhammad today. And it, um, it says um, also in Surah 61, verse 6, Remember when Isa, or Jesus, son of Miriam, said, O children of Israel, I am a messenger of Allah sent towards you, confirming the Torah that is sent down before me, and giving you the good news of a messenger who will come after me, whose name will be Ahmed. But when he came to them with manifest signs, he said, This is a clear magic. Um, so the Quran makes specific claims that Muhammad is prophesied in the Torah and in the Injil. Now, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, Muslims maintain that the message of the Injil and Torah has been corrupted and lost. Um, but there's a problem with that. Uh, consider, for example, Surah 2, verse 91. It says, When it is said to them, Believe in what Allah has revealed, they say, We believe in what has been revealed to us, and they deny what is beyond it, whereas that is the truth which confirms what is with them. What is with them, right? Say, Why then have you been slaying the prophets of Allah earlier if you were believers? Um, another example. Um, um, Surah 3, verse 70. O people of the book, why do you disbelieve in the verses of Allah while you are yourselves witnesses to those verses? Um, Surah 3, verse 199 says, Surely among the people of the book, there are those who believe in Allah and in what has been sent down to you and what has been sent to them. Humbling themselves before Allah, they do not barter away the verses of Allah for paltry or worldly gains. They have their reward with their Lord. Surely Allah is swift at reckoning. Now notice in that verse the use of the plural personal pronoun them. The revelation from Allah was apparently sent not only to Jesus, but to them, meaning the people of the book. So um, that um, strongly uh, militates, I think, against the common Muslim uh, contention that the Injil was revealed only to Jesus and that uh, and it wasn't revealed to the Christians themselves. Um, and uh, another example of uh, the, what the Quran says concerning the previous revelations is in Surah uh, 5, Surah Al-Maida. Verse 43 through 49, it says, How do they, speaking of the Jews, ask you to judge while the Torah is with them, having the ruling of Allah? Still, they turn away after all that. They are no, they are no believers. Surely we have sent down the Torah in which there was guidance and light by which the prophets who submitted themselves to Allah used to judge for the Jews, and so did the men of Allah and the men of knowledge, because they were ordained to protect the book of Allah, and they stood guard over it. So, O Jews of today, do not uh, fear people. Fear me, and do not take a paltry price for my verses. Those who do not judge according to what Allah has sent down are disbelievers. We prescribe for them therein, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a nose for a nose, an ear for an ear, and a tooth for a tooth, and for wounds, an equal retaliation. Then, if one forgives it, that will be expiation for them. Those who do not judge according to what Allah has sent down, they are the unjust. We sent Isa, son of Miriam, after those prophets, confirming the Torah that was revealed before him, and we gave him the Injil, having guidance and light therein, and confirming the Torah that was revealed before it a guidance and a lesson for the God-fearing, and the people of the Injil must judge according to what Allah has sent down therein. Those who do not judge according to what Allah has sent down, they are the sinners. We have sent down to you the book with truth, confirming the book before it, and the protector for it. So judge between the, um, uh, between the according to what Allah has sent down, and do not follow their desires against the truth that has come to you, um, and so on. So here we have uh, 
the Quran again. Christians and Jews um, are told by the Quran that they must judge Muhammad's message by the contents of their scriptures, namely the Torah and the Injil. How can they do so without um, without it? How can they do? So, how, why would Allah ask them to judge by a source that's been corrupted beyond recognition? Um, so uh, the uh, the Quran also says in verse 6 to 8 of Surah Al-Ma'idah, Say, O people of the book, you have nothing to stand on unless you uphold the Torah and the Injil. The Injil, by the way, is the Gospel. And what has been sent down to you from your Lord? What has been sent down to you from your Lord will certainly make many of the most persistent in rebelling and disbelief. So do not grieve over the disbelieving people. Um, so not only does that text command the people of the book, the Al-Qatab, to uphold the Torah and the Injil, which they must have in their possession for the command to even make sense, but they are told of the scriptures that were previously sent to you. Now, who does you refer to in this context? In context, it can only refer to the people of the book, the Al-Al-Kitab. Um, and that's very difficult to square with the popular Islamic notion that the Injil was revealed only to Jesus and was quickly lost without leaving any trace in history. Again, the text assumes that the people of the book possess the Torah and the Injil and that they've neither been corrupted nor lost. And as if those weren't enough, consider also Surah 10, Surah Yunus, verse 94, says, So, O Prophet, even if you are in doubt about what we have sent down to you, ask those who read the book revealed before you. Surely truth has come to you from your Lord, so never be among those who are suspicious. So again, the text makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, unless the Christians and Jews have access to the book revealed before Muhammad. The Muslim contention, then, that the Christian and Jewish scriptures have been corrupted beyond recognition is simply without any support whatsoever from the Quran. Very good. I appreciate you kind of walking us through that. Um, one of the objections I've seen, I, I had contacted you last week, uh, was watching a few a few videos, I guess it was down at Speaker's Corner. Talk, talk for a minute real quick just about what Speaker's Corner is uh, for those who may not who may not know. So Speaker's Corner is kind of the center of free speech in Europe. Uh, every Sunday there's a um, gathering of uh, Christians, Muslims, and also some, some smaller groups such as atheists who meet uh, and the purpose is to have you know, open dialogue about controversial topics. And so there's people who speak from a ladder and uh, and uh, they can say whatever they like uh, and often they get heckled from the floor and then there's also people on the ground just having conversations with people about worldview topics. Have you, have you, you've participated in that, I guess, uh, a few more than yes. a few times? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a great idea. Um, I've seen a few of the videos from there with a few different Muslim apologists um, pummeling Christians, actually, on the idea of uh, the Gospels and whether or not they are reliable. Um, maybe you could go over a few of the objections uh, that we hear commonly against the Gospels. Um, from what I understand, they take a lot from, from people like Bart Ehrman and use the same kind of arguments and uh, – uh, real quick, with, with that second debate you did with Shabir Ali, what, what was that topic on? Was that on reliability of the Bible? or It was on, uh, is Jesus God or is he a prophet of Islam? Okay. Okay, but uh, okay, t- talk to us for a few minutes kind of about the objections that come from, uh, to the Gospels and, and how we can answer those. Sure. I mean, there's many that uh, come up. Uh, just to take an example, uh, one 
a very popular contention among Muslim apologists and polemicists today is that um, basically uh, the um, Christology of the early church evolved over time. And so in Mark's Gospel, you don't have a very high Christology. We don't have the deity of Christ. And then uh, the Christology evolves from uh, through to Matthew and then Luke and then through to John. Um, and you get this evolving Christology. And um, Jesus, in fact, didn't claim to be God. Um, in fact, this is a later invention that's developed um, and evolved much later on. Um, so that's one objection. There's many problems with that. Um, one is that um, Mark's gospel actually does affirm the deity of Christ. Um, if you look, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, which uh, says in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, and then it goes on to quote from two Old Testament passages of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Um, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Um, and so who is this? Uh, and so so we, we have these two, this double allusion to the Old Testament where a forerunner was going to prepare the way for Yahweh himself to come uh, to his temple. And uh, then verse 4 says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is um, being identified here as the messenger from, from these texts that's preparing the way. Um, and it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so here we see uh, um, the one who John the Baptist is preparing the way for identified as Jesus. And yet, uh, um, so in, in Isaiah and Malachi, the way is prepared and Yahweh comes down, it, whereas in Mark, the way is prepared and Jesus comes down. It. So there's an example for Mark's Gospel where actually the deity of Christ is affirmed. Um, and there's other examples as well. Um, now, there's another way you can refute this ar argument, and that's by going to the Apostle Paul and his writings. Um, and the reason why I would go to the Apostle Paul is because one can make a good argument that Paul was on the same page, theologically speaking, as the eldership of the Jerusalem church. In fact, he was in good terms with them. Now, that would present a problem for the Islamic position, because the Quran. Um, tells us that Jesus' disciples were in fact Muslims. In Surah 352, it says, When Jesus sends disbelief in them, he said, Who are my helpers in the way of Allah? The disciples said, We are helpers of Allah. We believe in Allah, so be our witness that we are Muslims. Surah, 6, Surah 61, verse 14 says, O you who believe, be supporters of the religion of Allah. Just as Isa, son of Miriam, said to the disciples, Who are my supporters towards Allah? The disciples said, we are the supporters of the religion of Allah. So a group from the children of Israel believed, and another group disbelieved. Then we supported those who believed against their enemy, and they became victors. So the apostles of Jesus are portrayed as being uh, faithful Muslims. So if we can demonstrate that the, uh, uh, that the disciples of Jesus, in fact, were not Muslims, but in fact they actually affirmed the deity of Christ, then that would lead into a problem for Islam. So, how do I use Paul the Apostle? Well, we have good reason to believe that Paul was on the same uh, page and was on good terms with the eldership of the Jerusalem church. Um, so, uh, for example, if we, um, if 
if we look at First uh, Corinthians uh, 15, verses 9 through 11, for example, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. I am worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecute the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so he preached, and so he believed. And so thus, Paul appears to endorse the other apostles, even going so far as to say he considers himself less than the least of them. And Paul seems to assume that the Corinthian Christians also believed his message to be consistent with the other apostles that had previously preached to, him, preached to them. Uh, that strongly suggests that the Paul and the other apostles were genuinely in a, generally in agreement on the core matters of the faith. Now, um, another example is um, that uh, um, Paul in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, mentions that there are divisions and factions um, among the Corinthian Christians. He, t- he tells them, you know, some say I follow uh, Cephas, others I, I follow Apollos, others um, I follow Paul, and others I follow Christ. And basically he's saying, guys, we're all on the same team here. So, um, again, that shows us that... Um, that Paul was largely on the same page as the eldership of the Jerusalem church. In fact, that's further supported by Clement of Rome, who knew both Peter and Paul personally, towards the end of the first century, who says, uh, towards the end of uh, his epistle to the Corinthian church, he writes, read your letter from the blessed apostle Paul again. What did he write to you in the early gospel days? How truly the things he said about himself and Cephas and Apollos were inspired by the Spirit. For that time, you'd been setting up favorites of your own. Perhaps this favoritism existed among you, was less culpable in those days, because at that time, two of the men you favored were apostles of the highest repute, and a third was one to whom the apostles had themselves given their approval. But look at the men who have seduced you now, and so on. So, clearly, even Clement regarded Paul and Peter as both apostles of the highest repute. So there was no reason to think that they were at loggerheads, as in fact many Muslims contend. And uh, there's various other reasons as well, but uh, as a cumulative case... We have very strong evidence to think that Paul and the eldership of the Jerusalem church were on good terms with one another, and since Paul affirmed the deity of Christ in numerous of his letters, it suggests strongly by extension that the eldership of the Jerusalem church likewise affirmed the deity of Christ, and so the deity of Christ goes way back into the earliest days of the Christian church, um, and uh, we can, uh, so there's, so, so that's um, kind of where I, the direction I'd want to take uh, that Okay, that's that is uh, very helpful. I'm uh, I'm reading a new book uh, by I think it's Brant Petrie, uh, the Case for Jesus or something like that, and and uh, he's a scholar at Notre Dame and has just done really good work on uh, the reliability of the Gospels as it gets into the authorship, etc. Um, did you want to did you want to talk at all about the authorship of of uh, the Gospels? Um, sure. Or, yeah. yeah, I'd be very happy to. Um, and then we'll, we'll I think get we to have that argument, your uh, argument you were wanting to, to talk about uh, in the last few minutes here as well. So, Okay, um, sure, let's talk about the authorship of the Gospels. I think we actually have a very good case for the authorship of the Gospels, um, contrary to what a lot of uh, Muslims will want to tell you and also what a lot of modern scholars will want to tell you. Um, so consider, for example, the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, the attestation to the authorship of Mark is geographically widespread. So if we consider three sources from the uh, later half of the second century, uh, Tertullian of Carthage, um, in his Against Marcion, uh, Book 4, Chapter 5, writing in North Africa, 
tells us that uh, that which Mark published may be affirmed to be Peter's, whose interpreter Mark was. And then Clement of Alexandria, and, and, as quoted by Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History, in Book 2, Chapter 15, writing in Egypt, tells us that those um, who heard Peter's teaching, and they quote, were not satisfied with merely a single hearing or with unwritten teaching of the divine gospel, but with all sorts of entreaties, they, sought, besought, they besought Mark, who was a follower of Peter, and whose gospel is extant, to leave behind with them in writing a record of the teaching passed on to them orally. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon, in his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 3, who himself was a, was a disciple of Polycarp, a companion of the Apostles, and in particular John, writing in France, tells us that, quote, Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Moreover, according to Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History, Book 5 and Chapter 8, Papies of Hierapolis, writing around 125 AD in Asia Minor, tells us that, quote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not indeed in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. So, there's no evidence of any competing authorship tradition, either for Mark or for any of the other three Gospels for that matter. The geographical spread and unanimity of the traditions suggest an early origin. And given that the Gospels are quoted by authors in the first part of the second century without being named in a similar way to how the Old Testament scriptures are often quoted, it suggests that these authors assume their audience to be acquainted with these uh, documents and that they consider them to be authoritative. If there was controversy and debate about the authorship of these Gospels in the first part of the second century, it stands to reason, then, that we should expect this to be reflected when names begin to be associated with these documents, but instead we see unanimity. Um, Secondly, uh, Justin Martyr tells us that the apostles themselves composed memoirs, which are called Gospels, um, such as in his First Apology in chapter 66. Now, in his Dialogue with Trifo, uh, which is dated around 160 AD, in chapter 106, he writes, and I quote, And when it is said that he changed the name of one of the apostles to Peter, and when it is written in the memoirs of him that this so happened, as well as that he changed the names of other two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, to Moanerges, which means sons of thunder. So Justin says that um, in these memoirs of him, it is written that Jesus changed the name of one of the apostles to Peter, and also changed the name of the sons of Zebedee to Boanerges, meaning sons of thunder. Now, neither of these is found in the extant portion we have of the so-called Gospel of Peter, but both of them are included in the Gospel of Mark. The statement about calling the sons of Zebedee sons of thunder is found only in Mark, in chapter 3, verse 17. So, since Papias also tells us that Mark was the interpreter of Peter, um, and since these other writers also uh, tell us um, this as well, this suggests that Mark, uh, the Mark being referred to here, is, is indeed our um, uh, canonical Mark. Um, and it seems unlikely that uh, it would have gone from being identified as the memoirs of Peter by Justin Martyr to the Gospel of Mark, unless they had very good reason to think that Mark was the author, because uh, Peter is such a higher-profile character relative to Mark. Uh, in fact, Mark is a very unlikely choice for false attribution of authorship. The apocryphal forgeries routinely attribute their Gospels to very high-profile figures, including Peter, uh, James, and Thomas, and so on. 
Uh, John Mark is best known for having caused a sharp fallout between Paul and Barnabas over having withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. Uh, since uh, the um, early church believed Mark's Gospels conveyed the teachings of Peter then, it seems very unlikely it would have been attributed to Peter had the early church not felt constrained by the fact that Mark really did write the Gospel that bears his name. Uh, moreover, as New Testament scholar Richard Baucom has shown in his landmark book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, there are, in fact, internal indications of Peter's influence on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, uh, so here's a few, of the, uh, a few examples from the evidence he lists. Uh, one is the frequent mention of Peter in Mark's Gospel. Mark refers to Peter a total of 26 times, whereas Matthew mentions Peter only three additional times, despite the fact that Matthew's Gospel is about double the length of Mark's Gospel. Uh, another evidence is that Mark is the only Gospel author who doesn't use uh, Simon Peter when talking about Peter, instead using either Simon or Peter. Simon was a very common name in Palestine, but Mark doesn't, get, doesn't uh, distinguish him from other Simons, which suggests uh, familiarity. And Mark's Gospel is also bookended with the disciple Peter. He's the first and last disciple mentioned. And that's a phenomenon that has been identified in other ancient texts, where a source is attributed to a particular uh, eyewitness um, and so uh, there we have a very strong reason to think that uh, Mark's uh, gospel is, in fact, uh, written by uh, Mark. Uh, we also have good reason to think um, that uh, the um, other gospels, I think, are, are written by the apostles to whom they are uh, traditionally uh, ascribed. Um, so consider, for instance, uh, the uh, the gospel of uh, uh, John. Uh, the Gospel of John is uh, um, 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 uh, omits to mention one of the disciples by name and preferring instead to call him the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, and um, towards the end of his Gospel, in John chapter 21 and verse 24, he writes, uh, This is the disciple, speaking of the disciple whom Jesus loved, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Um, and so... This is interesting because um, it, one can work out, I think, by a process of elimination, who the beloved disciple is, um, and that would be John, the son of Zebedee. Now, what's interesting is that um, we also have some independent um, evidence to think that uh, that John, the son of uh, that, sorry, that uh, that uh, John, the, the the writer of John's gospel, is the one whom John identifies as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, so, for example, um, if we look at uh, the Gospel of John and chapter 18, we have the story where uh, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane. And um, we read that at verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, how does, how does the author of John's Gospel know the name of the servant of the high priest. Indeed, he's the only gospel to tell us the name of the servant of the high priest. But we continue reading, and um, we learn in, chap in verse 15 um, and verse 16, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, so did another disciple. So here we have um, a, the reference to the unnamed disciple, and I think we have good reason to think it is the same individual as the disciple whom Jesus loved, because in chapter 19, we see the disciple whom Jesus loved had followed Jesus, um, and in fact, he's standing at the cross where Jesus entrusts to the beloved disciple the care of his mother Mary. Um, 
So here we see in verse 15 of chapter 18, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So, why? Uh, so, so the fact that uh, the beloved disciple or the this unnamed disciple was someone who was known to the high priest explains why he would know the name of the servant of the high priest. Um, and so, uh, since um, we, we John is the only author of the Gospels to name the servant of the high priest, that's very consistent with that, and it adds um, some suggestive evidence that that the the unnamed disciple really is this individual. Um, we also have the fact that the three uh, Johannine epistles in John's Gospel, I would argue, are clearly written by the same author. Um, uh, Tertullian of Carthage, moreover, um, in the second century, late second century, in his Against Marcion, Book Four, Chapter Two, tells us that um, of the apostles, therefore, John and Matthew first instilled faith into us, whilst of of apostolic men, Luke and Mark renew it afterwards. Um, Clement of Alexandria, in his still extant writings, makes several mentions of the Gospel according to John and quotes out of it. Eusebius also quotes Clement uh, in his Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 24, when he says, and when uh, Mark and Luke had already published their Gospels, they say that John, who had employed all, um, all the, his time in proclaiming the Gospel orally, finally proceeded to write. Um, Irenaeus of Lyon, in his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 3, tells us that John, the disciple of the Lord, who also has leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Um, Polycarp of Smyrna, student of the Apostle John, in his epistle to the Philippians, in Chapter 7, alludes to First uh, John, Chapter 4, Verses 2 and 3, to deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to be Antichrist. And it seems that if the if first John wasn't written by John, then uh, Polycarp would presumably have known about it, and uh, because Polycarp was a disciple of John, and we have very good reason to think that John's Gospel and John and First John are written by the same author. Um, Craig Keener, who's a New Testament scholar, um, says in uh, his uh, the Gospel of John, um, consonant with and, and I'm quoting, consonant with what we find from the internal evidence, church tradition identifies the author of the fourth gospel with the Apostle John. So, um, D.A. Carson says um, in his, uh, the gospel according to John, and I quote, we have already traced the principal external evidence, i.e. evidence outside the fourth gospel itself, that maintains the evangelist was none other than the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. That evidence, such as it is, is virtually unanimous. Even if Irenaeus, toward the end of the second century, is amongst the strongest, totally unambiguous witnesses, his personal connection with Polycarp, who knew John, means the distance in terms of personal memories is not very great. Even Dodd, who discounts the view that the Apostle John wrote the Fourth Gospel, considers the external evidence formidable, adding of any external evidence to the contrary that could be called cogent, I am not aware. So, again, the Gospel of John has good reason to think that uh, it's written by him. Um, also, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the authorship of Luke is attested by Tertullian of Carthage, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, uh, Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are clearly written by the same author, and the author of Acts was clearly a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Um, and uh, the Pauline epistles indicate that Luke was a traveling companion of uh, Paul. And in fact, uh, 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 Luke gets a mention in Colossians 4 verse 14, and also in uh, Philemon 124, 
and it's uh, very probable that, uh, in fact, there's good reason, very strong evidence to think that Paul was writing both Colossians and Philemon about the same time from Rome, and it turns out that uh, Luke was, from, from the Book of Acts, Luke was one of Paul's traveling companions to Rome. So here we have um, um, evidence, uh, both internal and external. Also, Colossians 4.14 tells us that Luke was a physician, and uh, there's a good reason, uh, and there's good internal evidence to suspect that the author of Luke Acts was indeed um, a physician. So um, we, have, we have good uh, reason, I think, to trust uh, that as well. And uh, I think uh, uh, a case can be made for, for Matthew, but it's the trickiest one because Matthew, uh, uh, there, there's some arguments against Matthew, such as, uh, for instance, he uh, seems to borrow his uh, conversion story or his, his calling to be a disciple story from uh, Mark's gospel. Uh, but if we understand Mark to be the interpreter of Peter or relaying Peter's uh, information, then uh, he could have uh, been using it simply as an authoritative source from the Apostle Peter. But in any case, uh, you know, Matthew was, it seems an unlikely choice because he's uh, a tax collector, which were seen by the Jews as being traitors. But in any case, um, uh, whoever wrote the Gospel of Matthew, or indeed all the Gospels, was clearly someone who was either an eyewitness himself or someone very closely associated with eyewitnesses. Consider, just to give an example of some of the evidence for that in Matthew, if you look at Matthew 14 um, and verse 1, we read, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his, his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, why would, Matthew be ta- what, sorry, why would uh, Herod be talking about this matter to his servants? And secondly, how did Matthew come to know that, uh, that uh, Herod had said this to his servants? Uh, well, if we look over at Luke's account, Luke chapter 8, he mentions, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others provided for them out of their means. It's clearly, there were some, uh, you know, the wife of Herod's household manager um, herself was a disciple of Jesus. Um, and so that uh, um, provides us with some information that could explain why Matthew came to know that uh, what Herod had said to his servants. Uh, so there's other evidence as well, but that's uh, at least a start on the authorship of the Gospels. Right, very... Very good, and like I say, I would recommend that book by Brant, Dr. Brant Petrie. Uh, I think it's a case for the real Jesus for for more on that. Um, great job, Jonathan. You're just a wealth of information. Um, we got about five minutes or so left. Do you think you can present your your argument you were wanting to give on on that when in five very minutes? Quickly. Uh, uh, sure. Let me just uh, summarize it. Perhaps I was going to talk about the crucifixion dilemma, which is uh, Basically, the Quran, as your listeners, I'm sure, are aware, in Surah 4, verse 157, denies that Jesus was crucified. But um, uh, And so we have a problem here for, from the Islamic perspective. If Jesus, um, and this is the argument I make, if Jesus predicted his impending death by crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection, then one of two things is true. Either Jesus was not killed by crucifixion, which makes him a false prophet, which makes Islam false, or Jesus was killed by crucifixion, which contradicts the Quran, which also makes Islam false. So either way, Islam would be false. Um, and so basically, I, I develop an argument, um, and I don't have time to fully um, flesh it out here, but um, let me just give one or two examples. Um, so 
um, how can we show Jesus predicted his impending death ahead of time? Well, for example, consider Mark 14:58 and uh, Mark 15:29. When Jesus, said, when, the, when Jesus is at his trial before Caiaphas and the false witnesses step forward saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And three days I'll build another not made with hands. Um, and when he's on the cross, um, those, and this is 50, Mark 15, 29, those who pass by derided him, wagging their hands and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So neither Matthew nor Mark give us any pretext for Jesus having said that or even anything even approximating to that. In fact, there's no record in the Gospels anywhere of Jesus having said, destroy this man-made temple and read it in three days but not by human hands. What's interesting, though, is that it seems not to be something that's invented out of whole cloth, but it's rather a garbled version of something Jesus most likely said, especially in view of the allusion to the three days, which is often associated with Jesus' resurrection predictions. Now, in John 2, verses 18 and 19, we read, um, So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, in the context there, he's speaking about his body, and he's speaking about his death and his resurrection from the dead. And so John gives us the original statement of Jesus, but he doesn't report his use as an accusation and the misrepresentations of what Jesus had said. Um, and... Uh, Whereas the synoptics give us the later misrepresentations and his use as an accusation, but not the original statement. So neither of these is copied from the other. Um, just, uh, I'll give one more example, uh, just for the purpose of time. But Mark 8, verses 31 through 33, um, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and, be, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, um, the, um, what's interesting is that it's very unlikely that uh, Mark in particular would have invented this um, story, especially since Mark is the disciple and interpreter of the Apostle Peter. Uh, and, I mean, are we really to imagine Mark writing his gospel and, and, uh, and include... And, 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 and writing what Peter would have him say and saying that, uh, yeah, um, Jesus calls Peter Satan, the devil himself. It seems very unlikely to be a fabrication, and so it's supported there by the criterion of embarrassment, um, which supports the, the authenticity or the veracity of that statement. So there are, there are many other examples as well, but basically uh, there is good historical evidence to indicate that Jesus predicted his impending death by crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, and therefore either he was not killed by crucifixion, making him a false prophet, making Islam false, or he was crucified killed by crucifixion, contradicting Quran, also thereby making Islam false. And so it's a catch-22 situation. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Very good. Very succinct. Jonathan, where can people uh, watch your, your debates or uh, get more from you? I don't know if you're you – know, I imagine you catalog the articles and that, but you, you're writing on several blogs. Where can people find your, your information and where can sure. they, they get a hold of you? Well, my website is apologetics-academy.org. There's a link there to my YouTube channel uh, if you click on videos. Um, there's also um, a weekly webinar, which I run every Saturday um, at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time, uh, where I bring on different scholars from across the theological and philosophical spectrum to present on topics of interest to Christians and field uh, open floor Q&A discussion, dialogue, and debate. You can click on online apologetics training on my website to get the upcoming schedule for that. And you can also find at my website a link to the YouTube channel for past recordings of previous shows, um, web, uh, Website-wise, um, besides the Apologetics Academy website, um, I also write to answeringmuslims.com. 
um, and I write at crossexamine.org um, and various other websites as well. Very good. Well, we appreciate you coming on and, and uh, joining us. We're going to have you back again probably within the next uh, couple of weeks. Talk to us about the uh, the next show we're going to do on the undesigned coincidences. What what exactly are they, and uh, what will you be presenting? And go ahead and take about a minute. Well, sure. Uh, so undesigned coincidences are basically when you have multiple accounts that report on the same event, which interlock in a way that's unexpected if the story is being made up, or if one is copying from the other, or if both are copying from a common source. Um, and so we're going to be looking at uh, patterns of evidence in uh, the scriptures, not just in the Gospels, but also in Acts and also in the Epistles and also in the Old Testament, uh, which are very surprising and unexpected on the hypothesis that these are myths and legends, but actually uh, the evidence indicates very strongly that uh, these um, accounts are based on uh, reality and history and that what the scriptures report to us are indeed substantially true. All right, Jonathan, appreciate you joining us, uh, and uh, look forward to having you come on again. Well, thank you. All right, folks, uh, join us again next uh, week. We will be doing, got all kinds of shows uh, lined up. Uh, we're going to do part two of Phil Fernandez's uh, lecture that we looked at on apologetic methodology, we're looking at his book, The Apologetic um, Method, the Fernandez Guide to apologetic methodology um that's uh, that that episode has got a lot of uh a lot of interest and a lot of downloads um i was informed that the seattle c.s lewis um group uh, replayed the podcast uh and so that's always very exciting love to love to uh to hear that uh, doc is a is a brilliant guy so we'll have him on again Uh, We'll have Jonathan McClatchy on again. We'll look at uh, the undesigned coincidences. And I just really want to thank uh, those who who listen to the show. Uh, It's a labor of love. And we try and bring to you guys some of the top thinkers in Christianity and and want to help equip people to know uh, why they are Christians, why they believe what it is that they believe. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please contact us at Theology Matters with the Palouse on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, God bless and uh, be safe.